Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. With us today is Ben Kamins, founder and CEO of Spring Discovery, a company devoted to accelerating therapies for aging and its diseases. Prior to that, Ben was the first engineer for Khan Academy, which provides free online education to millions of users around the world, which may seem unrelated to aging, but we're going to tie in the concept of nonprofit missions later in the interview. Ben, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm pumped to be a part of this. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I want to say to our listeners, this is a milestone of sorts for Translating Aging. It's the 10th episode of our show, so it's our special pleasure to have a guest who is so aligned with BioAge's goals, not only treating diseases of aging, but also communicating that story to the biotech community and beyond. Ben is somebody that we think of as a friend of the company and a kindred spirit. Awesome. Ditto. I'm very appreciative. And uh, yeah, I've been enjoying following the podcast and pumped to be a part of it. Well, we're really glad to have you here. Let's get right down to it. In late September, you closed a Series B round of $32 million at Spring Discovery with an impressive list of investors who are venture leaders in the emerging longevity biotech space. So first of all, congratulations. Thanks very much. Very, very proud of this and honored to get to move forward and do more work. So what I'd like to do is allow you to introduce the company and its work and then come back to how that funding is going to help you help the company advance its work. All right. So Spring Discovery, I assume you named that because Fountain of Youth was a bit too on the nose. <laughs> well, not so much aiming for that angle as much as Spring's recognition of life, green, growth, tree, you know, survival, that sort of angle. You know, it's funny you ask about the name because when we first started the company, we were trying to figure out, okay, do you call it Spring Discovery? Do you call it Spring Labs? Do you call it Spring Therapeutics? And I remember thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, we're starting as a discovery company and whenever we have the problem of no longer appropriate, well, that will be a great problem to have. That seems so far off in the future. You know, we'll deal with that later. <laughs> now we have this problem as we're trying to approach the clinic for the first time and we're signing up partners and we have this discovery in our name and we've moved far beyond it. And so uh, that's a separate branding issue we found ourselves with. Well, I don't think it's going to be too much of a hurdle as you move forward. You were founded in 2017, which makes you practically geriatric in this sector. That's true. It's true. It's kind of shocking. I mean, time moves fast, right? I can't really keep track of things in my head, but yeah, yeah, four years now. Spring describes itself as a team of scientists, engineers, and drug developers working together to increase healthy lifespan and dramatically reduce disease. Could you tell us a little bit more about the company's mission? We see ourselves as a group that's trying to provide world-leading technology to the scientists who are working on what we think is the most important problem that scientists could be working on and trying to battle diseases of aging and find therapies for age-related mechanisms. This comes from you know, some of my own personal background. Some of my most distinct memories at Khan Academy, to come back to what you just mentioned, were these experiences of walking into classrooms and teachers hearing about the tools that they need and they didn't have access to. And then we would go build these tools and it wouldn't take long. We'd build some, you know, some of the tools that they needed were fairly simple and straightforward and we'd build things for them. And then their eyes would light up. They couldn't believe it. They'd never have this experience of having tools custom built for them, these people who are doing one of the most important jobs in the world. And it was a very addictive experience. It's something that felt like a very 
great use of, of technology. And what Spring really represents is this belief that there are many scientists out there. There are many world leaders, experts, people who are dedicating their careers and their craft to trying to work on this incredibly complex and difficult problem, trying to wrangle and understand what happens to us as we age. How can we combat it? How can we use this lever to fight so many different diseases? But at the same time, they're often doing it with tools that they don't have control over. They're unable to iterate on them. Many people are working with just yesterday's tools. They're struggling sometimes with very basic things, let alone having access to cutting-edge machine learning tools. I think that there's huge leverage in identifying these very world-changing missions in the past related to education and, most importantly, now related to the biology of aging and bringing world-leading technology in collaboration with these folks. That, to me, is a really powerful place to apply the skills of technology. And that's what our team represents. It's a group of people from the technology side building tools, building machine learning pipelines, building all sorts of computational power in collaboration with and in order to enable the humans that are doing the scientific work, doing the discovery work, doing the drug discovery pipeline navigation. And I couldn't think of a more important mission to try to enable than battling the diseases of aging. And our mission is to give the best technology possible to these people who are doing what we think is the most important work possible. A skeptic might say, why deal with aging? Why not just treat these diseases individually? I like to stay in touch with my early skepticism when I first approached the space. You know, I left my past job and I was going to go into the computational bio field to try to fight disease. I've had type 1 diabetes for 25 plus years. I just have a lot of empathy for people who deal with health conditions of all sorts. You know, we all have our connections to health. Mine is one in which every day I make various decisions that remind me of people who have to deal with health issues. And so I wanted to align these parts of my life. I wanted to align the part of me that has such empathy for those who deal with disease with how I spend my limited working hours. I did not come to this space with some a priori strong conviction about what's happening in the aging research community. I was very skeptical about it. You know, there's plenty of other people that I know you have on your podcast and people who are luminaries in the field who are knowledgeable about and convicted about the impact of aging biology from young ages. There are people who are luminaries, people who are accomplished therapeutics executives. I came to this field as none of those things. I came to this field as an outsider and somebody who's really a team builder and interested in deploying the intersection of scientists and technology to try to fight disease. I'm very grateful that I met a number of people along the way who were extremely they were willing to challenge me pretty hard and with respect to my view of aging. I viewed that this I thought this wasn't a pragmatic field to work on. I thought, look, people have diseases today. Go work on type 1 diabetes, go work on, you know, cancer, go work on whatever it is. Why are we working on this far off futuristic probably not going to make a difference thing? And I'm grateful that I met some people who basically essentially sat me down and told me, "Look, if you believe it, if you care so much about fighting disease, Go read the actual papers. Go talk to the actual experts. Go learn about what's happening in the aging research space. And I, I really needed that smack upside the head <laughs> uh, because I did. You know, I spent six months. I, I went and called every PI I could and asked them, uh, you know, so did you see the mice that are like this, this picture of these mice that I'm looking at in your paper? Did you see this picture? Is this a cherry picked picture? What's BS here and what's not? And after all of this searching for the BS in the field, I walked away converted from a skeptic to somebody who wanted to put their career on the line for a field that so clearly is full of 
potential for fighting disease at a scale that is unlike any other field that is out there. And so I try to be honest with that story. You know, I know some people sort of were born with this realization about aging. I was not. I came to this from the outside. I was skeptical of it. And I now believe that this is one of the most important places that anybody could possibly commit their career if you care about reducing suffering caused by disease, which to me is the is the metric. That's a beautiful articulation of the importance of the aging mission. But let me ask you now, what are the obstacles to succeeding in this mission? Or to ask it another way, why is drugging aging and clinical development in this space a hard problem? First of all, I strongly agree with the question because it's fun to muse about the possible large impact of this space. But no listener may believe this, but I am an extremely pragmatic person, especially when it comes to company building and entrepreneurialism. I believe it's very important to understand your market. It's very important to understand how you're going to gradually build your company. It's very important to understand how you're going to iteratively acquire resources so that you can then increase your scope and increase your ambitions and the like. And you know, you can't do that by aiming for the moon immediately. You have to progressively build your abilities and the business model that you pursue and the strategy that you pursue has to follow that. And the aging space certainly presents real problems for a company that wants to pragmatically build its value and resources over time because historically, you do not have any straightforward ways to get to the clinic. You have criticism with respect to the pragmatism of the indications that you might pursue. You have somewhat of a graveyard of past companies that have tried various ambitious indications and haven't worked out. Uh, you know, you have people who, and I don't mean this to be critical, but there's a lot of time spent debating what is the nature of aging? What does it mean to age? What does it not mean to age? Um, these sorts of things. And there's value in it. And, and I, by the way, I would never be able to do what I do today if people hadn't spent all this time doing this. But to build a company, you have to have a path forward. And that path forward has to go through value creation. And that in the therapeutics industry at some point is going to go through the clinic and is going to go through commercialization of therapies for an indication. And so, you know, here's where the rubber meets the road. I think that historically, a, there just haven't been enough companies grappling with this problem. If you define the problem as, if we focus on the biology of aging, are there pragmatic indication and company building paths we could follow? So there's just a there's been historically a dearth of this. Although of course I'm talking to one of the companies who's been the original leader in the space, and there's more, um, and that's changing. And I think that historically, my personal view is that some people have been too willing to start with too much ambition when it comes to indication strategy and how much they expect to get out of their initial research and their initial therapies related to aging. And I think I take a much more pragmatic build small wins into large wins into larger wins strategy when it comes to company building, indication strategy, and generally tackling this messy challenge of you're trying to get somewhere big, you're aiming for the biggest thing possible in the world, but it's a mistake to shoot there first. A word that appears again and again in Spring's self-descriptions is accelerating. The idea that you're speeding up drug discovery and the clinical development path. Could you tell us a bit more about how you're achieving this acceleration? There's a couple dimensions that are important here. We could maybe temporarily split up into preclinical and clinical work. I think with respect to clinical work, the mindset that I just described is very, very critical. I know it's one that BioAge has put a lot of thought into as well and is leading as well, as well as others like Celine and Loyal in the space. I think that identifying an indication strategy which minimizes clinical execution risk and clinical timeline risk is very important in a field that carries so much of it. So that's, of course, a huge one. On the preclinical side, this is really where our technology is focused. When I spoke to people, when I was vetting the space and I was asking people about whatever this lab's current pet mechanism was or this lab's current favorite 
therapeutic angle that they were pursuing. I would ask them, you know, so what are you doing in the next 10 years? What are you doing over the next five years to translate this work? What are the experiments you run? How do you validate this? How do you search for related therapies that you might be able to develop? The answers were all, again, I'm not being critical. I think the reality is the tools that are available are tough, but the answers were not that aggressive and fast. People's ability to move forward and with translational efforts for the research they were following up with in the aging space were really hampered by a number of things. And you know, one of the most basic things they're hampered by is just the difficulty of knowing what to measure and of validating that they're having an impact in the aging-related biology that they're interested in. When you mention aging, you're immediately talking about this extremely broad array of biological phenomena, some of which are going to be relevant clinically, some of which are not. You have all this epiphenomena going on, you have feedback loops. And by the way, all of this multidimensional changes that are happening to us as we age, they happen slowly by definition compared to our lifetimes. And so, you know, now you have this incredible measurement problem. You know, people seem to really struggle with measurement and they're running lifespan models to validate things and they're running slow injury healing models. This to me was the spark that seemed to connect so nicely with what's been happening recently in the world of computation and machine learning, which has essentially been you know, a decade, five years, getting closer to a decade of major progress in machines' abilities to untangle very multidimensional data at superhuman rates. And this presented a real opportunity to build the best company in the world at measuring the many changes that are cool in us as we age. And we had the idea that if we could just focus there, if we could become incredible at that problem of understanding the changes that happen to us as we develop age-related disease and being able to disentangle them, that this would dramatically accelerate the preclinical discovery pipeline, both from a perspective of the throughput of how much we could test and therefore the search spaces we could search for, and for the speed in which we could proceed to continue to validate the most promising hits and leads that are coming out of that work. We've essentially taken a really an engineering throughput mindset to disentangling the many dimensions of age-related changes that accrue in our cells and tissues over time and built a company around getting really, really good at that and then using that to much more quickly search for therapies. So that's a big part of where our acceleration comes from, and we're going to continue to dedicate ourselves there. I'd like to hear more about how your machine learning approach interfaces with wet lab automation. We build models of age-related disease with lots of primary human samples. We specifically, these days, work mostly with the immune system, so we're working with lots of primary human PBMCs, but we've done this with multiple different tissue types and are going to continue to spin up programs in multiple different tissue types. We take these samples and we've built out an automated wet lab that generates a ton of phenotypic data about these samples. So we're generating it's about 80% high-content imaging data and 20% proteomic cytokine data on top of it. We're generating terabytes and terabytes of this data consistently from our inflow of samples. And this data is then being used in our machine learning pipeline to try to parse out many different functions and features of the cellular biology that helps us separate the behaviors of the immune system for young, the behaviors of the immune system for old, the behaviors of the immune system under this disease condition and that disease condition. And with that understanding, we then arm our scientists with tools to 
poke around these features and phenotypes, poke around this greater understanding of cellular function, and then run high-throughput drug screens, searching for drugs that reverse the things that we decide that we're interested in or most clinically relevant. So you could think of it as a big engine that takes in a whole bunch of primary human samples, spits out this very multidimensional, complete view of cellular function, but does it in a big single screen that's combining tons of phenotypic imaging data with proteomics data, and then uses a a set of models we've built up to identify different cellular functions that are being identified in that raw data. BioAge is also a clinical stage biotech company that's applying AI and ML-based tools to target the mechanisms underlying healthy longevity. My question for you has two parts. Are we competitors, and why is the answer no? Yeah, those are both great questions. You know, one thing, I've shared this before when we've been on some panels and stuff together, but I just have so much respect for Kristen, you know, all of BioAge, but, you know, a special thanks to Kristen because I met up with her before starting spring and shared what we were thinking of doing and how we were thinking of approaching it. And, you know, there are so many founders out there, and I've run into them, whose response to that would be some form of, you know, we kind of already do it, so good luck, but we're ahead of you, or, you know, just come join us instead. You know, Kristen's attitude is there should be more companies in this space. Sounds like you're doing something that's quite different and quite both technically and philosophically divergent from where we are heading with BioAge. I wish you the best and here to support. And I just think it speaks to her authenticity, you know, who she is and why she's trying to do what she does, because I certainly have run into people who took the other path. Uh, And so just lots of respect for that attitude. And I try to model that as well when I interact with other people that are entering the space. I will say that the idea that we are competitors or that two companies that work on aging or two companies that work on machine learning are competitors. It sounds like in the 90s saying that two companies that use a database are competitors. <laughs> These are two of the biggest fields. You know, it's just, it doesn't make sense. You know, how many cancer companies are there? And aging is a much bigger space than that. How many companies are there that use software? You know, using <laughs> software doesn't make you competitive. These are the tools of the modern era. So I do not view that as competition whatsoever. I have nothing but respect for BioAge. And, you know, if anything, I think our successes help each other more than, more than any other relationship between our company's outcomes. You know, I think the last thing I'll say, because I do get this question from VCs a fair amount, not about BioAge in general, but just about competition in general, I lose sleep about all sorts of things related to spring. Worried about this, I'm worried about that, I'm thinking about that. I've never lost sleep about a competitor. I just don't think that we can cause all sorts of problems for ourselves. I don't really know what a competitor would do that would really dramatically change our trajectory. I think our trajectory is up to us. And I think it's true of most people in the aging space. So yeah, you know, lots of respect for Kristen. And I'm trying to embody that attitude myself. I'm sure she'll be so pleased to hear that you say that. I know she has a lot of respect for you as well. It's interesting that you said that you'd encountered founders who kind of treated you like that you might be a competitor or who tried to, you know, assimilate you rather than welcome you into the fold. I find that Kristen's response to you, and by the way, for our listeners who don't know, Kristen Fortney, Dr. Kristen Fortney is the CEO and co-founder of BioAge Labs, that her response is very much more the rule than the exception, because I think that people in the aging, what do we want to call it, the aging pharma space, the longevity biotech space, we realize that it's a giant territory. It is extremely unlikely that if we wander around on our various trajectories in this space, that we're going to step on each other's feet. And... To the extent that one of us or several of us succeeds, it creates a rising tide that's going to lift all boats. 
it's going to provide proof of principle that the approach is valid. And I think that one of the things that came up in, I believe it was our episode four, when we had Celine Hollywa from Loyal, who you mentioned on the show, this is a field that is waiting for a big win. It has a lot of potential, but as of yet, we do not have the clinical end stage product that came from pursuing fundamental mechanisms of aging and then pursuing clinical development based on that. So I think that to the extent that any company can demonstrate that this is a viable path, and there's every theoretical reason to believe that it is, you believe, I believe, Kristen believes, many of our listeners believe, that will just create an even greater influx of resources and funding into the sector. So I totally agree with you. I mean, obviously, I set up the question this way. We are all in this together more than we are in it separately. I do think it is somewhat partially unique to the aging space. I mean, this does exist for other missions that are out there, but I do think there's something about being in a space that's you know so early and so difficult. And the people who are in it are believers in a an enormous, very positive possible impact for human health that many other people are not aware of that causes in a camaraderie, which is powerful. But the people I was referring to who were maybe slightly less encouraging were not in the aging space. It was more um, other biotechnology type spaces. We're all friends here, which is why we're so excited to hear from you how your Series B funding is going to help you reach your goals. You know, we're quite excited because, and BioAge has been here as well, we're at this pivotal moment for us where we're going from a company that has a a world-leading technology platform for helping with drug discovery to a company that also has a burgeoning clinical pipeline running. And that's a difficult jump. There are few companies that can materially claim to have both of those things. Often, you know, you have a therapeutics company who claims they have a platform technology, but really it's not. It's just sort of a description of how their initial discovery came about. Or you have platform companies, technology companies who really haven't been able to make this bridge. And those who are able to combine these things through all sorts of various creative structures, they tend to do quite well. They tend to unlock a lot of value. They tend to be able to move forward in their dreams. And so this is an exciting moment for us because we're well positioned to make this jump. And this Series B for us both lets us significantly continue to invest in our technology, which we're always investing in. And we're improving both the throughput and the insights that can be generated from the screening technology that I just described to you. And it also lets us enter our first clinical trial, which we're aiming for next year. We won't get into exact timing, but we're aiming for shortly. And so we're excited to do that as well. So, you know, it's a pivotal couple of years for us. And this funding, we're at that situation where we have very clear, more clear than ever before goals in front of us, which if we're able to accomplish, set our company on a powerful path of trying to search for more and develop more therapeutics. So uh, yeah, it's an important time. Like I said, I, there's lots of things I lose sleep over right now. Not competition, but lots of things going on to, <laughs> to make happen with this fundraising. It's a big ship and you're the captain. I know that we sometimes have to be tight-lipped about these matters, and you and I were talking about this very issue before we started tape rolling for the interview, but what can you tell us about Spring's therapeutic pipeline? We have two discovery engines right now that are launching multiple programs, and one of those is expected to advance to clinical trials next year, as I described to you. What I can share is that our current focus is in the world of immune aging and specifically how immune aging applies to both the pulmonary and skin therapeutic areas. We can't get into a ton more detail than that, but I can say that biologically, within the space of immune aging as it applies to both pulmonary and skin indications. Our two discovery engines are really focused on the worlds of inflammasome inhibition as well as innate immune system activation and specifically how those two 
those two functions get modulated over time as we grow older. You know, this isn't exactly groundbreaking, but you know, we're pretty bullish on the importance of the immune system's changes as we age uh, and its connection to many different diseases. Revolutionary, Ben. Revolutionary. I know, I know. Truly groundbreaking. And we're also pretty bullish on the complexity of those changes and therefore the value of tools that give us novel ways to try to characterize what is going on as the immune system loses function as we develop diseases of aging. For us, those focuses right now are on the loss of innate immune system activation and inflammasome inhibition. And like I said, both pulmonary and skin are two therapeutic areas. What are the first challenges you expect to face along that path? Oh, well, um, you know, just as a company builder, one thing we've just been doing is strengthening our clinical team, regulatory team. You know, we've been historically very strong on both the discovery biology and computational side. And, you know, now this is a whole new ballgame. So I'm really thrilled with the folks that we brought in on the clinical side and really enjoying working with our new CMO and learning a ton from him, as well as, you know, now, you know, these therapeutic areas that I mentioned, we both are running our own internal programs and we also have multiple partnerships in the wings and there'll be announcements coming from us in the somewhat near future. And so in addition to strengthening our clinical side, we've also been focused on building out our BD operations and recently hired a great CBO who's been helping me a ton. So I don't think it's a coincidence that when you ask what's on my mind, my answer quickly goes to the team. You know, I'm somebody who knows what I know and knows what I don't know. And these things that we have to go into, these fields we have to go into, clinical development, R&D partnerships, joint ventures, all that sort of stuff. I'm not an expert in that either. So I've been mostly trying to make sure we have the right people around our team because we're seeing pull for our technology. We're seeing a lot of value for it in different spaces. And right now it's been a team building game for me. Okay. We've talked about money, how you're raising money to some extent, how you plan to spend that money to advance your goals and a little bit about how you're going to make money in the future. Now I want to take a turn and talk about an initiative from Spring that is probably not going to make you any money at all. Last year, you spun out a nonprofit to run a clinical trial of a generic drug against COVID. We found ourselves in an interesting situation back in February, March of 2020 when COVID was coming around because a couple things were happening. One is it's an exaggeration, but every biotech company, you know, under the sun was spinning up some COVID-related thing. There was COVID testing, there's vaccine efforts, there's therapeutic efforts, people putting out press releases, whether they're going to do anything or not. And I really am hesitant about sort of chasing the shiny thing as a CEO. I like focus, I like direction. And I'm hesitant about this sort of stuff. And I you know, kept picturing what happened with Ebola and certain companies became Ebola companies and then Ebola goes away and those companies go away. And so you know, I didn't want to get caught sort of chasing the shiny temporary object. And so we were following our standard path. And then, as you know, the more data that came out, the more it became very obvious that more so than any other comorbidity, one's age defined one's outcome with COVID. And it was almost looking like people who are much older who get COVID have an entirely different disease than people who are much younger. And then it became obvious that what I just said was literally true, that your age was the strongest predictor, more so than whether you had a heart condition or a pulmonary condition or diabetes, that your age was the strongest predictor of what would happen. Now, we on our side, as this was happening, we had been, as I mentioned, focused on understanding what is the difference between elderly versus young immune system responses to various challenges, including viral challenges, because we're interested in immune system activation and vaccine adjuvants and the like. 
And so, you know, here we were at this moment where I didn't want to get distracted, but at the same time, we had this tool built to try to understand the differences in young versus old immune system reaction to various challenges. The world was being incredibly challenged by an immune system issue, which was dramatically affecting the elderly. It seemed like we had a tool that might offer a different look at therapeutic options than what other people were pursuing, which was mostly, and very understandably, a vaccine-driven angle or an initial antiviral angle. And so we thought there was an opportunity here. And so we basically set up a sprint. We said, look, we're willing to spend a couple months on this. We'll run this screen. We'll see what comes out of this. We'll go try to see if our system is determining differences in immune system responses to a viral challenge that illuminates what might be happening with COVID. And if it is, then maybe we'll identify something that we might want to consider moving forward for, you know, hopefully commercial reasons. And I would like to really emphasize here, we are a for-profit company. We are a commercial for-profit biotech company. And so that was the purpose of running this sprint. We ran this sprint. Uh, you know, you can go read about, we've published a preprint about the screen that we ran, all the technology and what we identified and how we profiled the difference in young and old response to the immune challenge. And what ended up happening is that the thing that looked most interesting, the thing that looked most promising coming out of this was a generic drug, a cheap generic drug, disulfiram. It's called antabuse. It's used to fight alcohol addiction. And it looked to us and it looked to our system like it was helping the elderly immune system respond to this viral challenge, much more like a younger immune system. And we thought, it's kind of interesting. And so then we started poking around and we found some incredible researchers who became collaborators at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard, Hao Wu and Judy Lieberman, who had a couple of years ago happened to figure out that disulfiram inhibits paraptosis. It inhibits a number of inflammasome-related processes by blocking gastrin D pore formation. And so, you know, we reached out to them and talked to them, and they had previously run sepsis mouse models where they had shown disulfiram's ability to rescue mice who had proceeded down the hyperinflammatory path of sepsis. They had, of course, independently, because of this research of theirs, been interested in the possibility that disulfiram might be able to help COVID patients. We started talking with them. They said, yeah, look, it's a generic. Nobody wants to fund this. We don't really know what to do. We believe in it. We showed them our data. They were excited by our data, which is finding this sort of Again, we ran a totally unbiased, high-throughput, you know, many thousands of drugs screen that turned this up. So, so we sort of had these independent confirmations. And we were then in this position where strategically, there is very little reason for a biotech company to invest in a generic drug. It's not a thing that happens. That, you know, it's not, a, not like a whole bunch of repurposing clinical studies get run for generic drugs in the United States. This isn't a common thing. That's not happening. And then, you know, if you look at the landscape of what was happening with COVID, there was relatively limited investment in therapies that were directly targeting the immune system's response, the hyperinflammatory later stage or medium to later stage of COVID's progression. You know, there were some drugs that are being tested, but then there was one or two failures, things that are targeting specific cytokines. And so the government's funding sort of got turned off of investing here. Most of it was going into vaccines. Again, I'm not criticizing that, but most of it was going to vaccines and antivirals, large other funders that were out there were following that same path after some of the early single cytokine failures. And so we're sort of in the situation where we couldn't find anybody 
any like big funder who wanted to invest more in inflammatory related processes for COVID. We thought we had taken a unique approach to this by focusing on young versus old, which was a totally different therapeutic question that most people were leaving out that fact in the search for a COVID-related therapy, the fact that the elderly suffer so much more than than the young. And we think it's foolish to Just leave to interject, out. they were leaving out like the most glaring clinical observation that had been made about this disease. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who is running in general for I mean, this gets into our whole thing. You know, you know, for most diseases, they are way worse for you if you're older. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so where is all the therapeutic discovery effort that is focused on that huge, huge fact? You know, and uh, in COVID, it's the same thing. So, you know, we were in this situation where we kind of had an option at this point, which was, look, blog, publish, tweet, reach out to all the researchers, put the information out there, and then go our separate way. Uh, and, you know, so be it. Or in the process of trying to vet and figure out how we could get somebody to this, First, we had these academic collaborators who had characterized a lot of what may be going on here, and they were very convicted behind this. We had, at that time, possible clinical collaborators who had been running a bunch of COVID trials, starting a bunch of COVID trials at that time, and they were very interested. It was very obvious in talking to these groups that the, you know, the safety profile of this drug was far stronger than many other things that are being tested for COVID at that time. Disulfiram is this thing that's getting used widely by thousands of people constantly around the world to fight alcohol addiction. And so... You know, it seemed like an experiment the world should run. And we basically said, okay, look, we have some of our own connections. We will go hustle. And we're very grateful because a number of independent philanthropists basically stood up and said, yeah, look, I know you can't make any money off this. Seems like a smart thing to run, you know, a couple million dollars to test this. The government, the world should be doing this. And some philanthropists stood up and said, uh, if you set up a nonprofit so that it's a separate, clean other thing, we'll fund it and we could basically get that money to our clinical partners. And we did. And you know, I'm extremely uniquely proud that we ran this. Now, we've recently finished the study, locked the database, results will be forthcoming. So who knows what happens, but I am very uniquely proud that we found a way to do this. And I know it's quite different and quite unique, but uh, I'm very grateful to the people who supported us and let us do this because unquestionably it was a good experiment to run. And, and you know, after the fact, by the way, there's been quite a number of progress and publications supporting the idea that pyroptosis is happening a lot in the lungs of COVID patients. It's exacerbated in those who do clinically worse. And so like unquestionably, the scientific justification for running this trial is quite strong and we just had to get a little creative. Uh, but again, we're a for-profit company. We run our own therapeutic programs and our own partnerships. But we just, you know, it's a global pandemic and you've got this cheap drug that, you know, it just didn't make sense to not do anything. It makes perfect sense to me. And you've done a great job of breaking everything down for us. I know you just said you locked the database. I'm sure some of our listeners who don't understand what that means are going to want to know the answer to the question. Can you tell us roughly when we're going to hear the top line results? We're expecting in coming months. So we can't say exactly. There's still stuff to debate with respect to that, but in coming months. Fantastic. So what has this experience taught you about testing drugs for age-related indications, if anything? And I'd be curious for your thoughts here, but I would say that one of the difficulties that I run into in the field when we talk about this age-related indication question is that to me and to our biologists and to a lot of our team, that's an extraordinarily broad bucket. Many different diseases go through worse progression and increase incidence rates as you grow older. And 
I feel that therefore the opportunity for caring about that biology and having impact on many different diseases is very broad. However, I think that many people who have not gone down this path, when they hear age-related indications, their mind sort of narrows. And they might think of one or two specific things. Maybe think of neurodegeneration, or maybe they think of, you know, okay, well, frailty, but it's hard to run a clinical trial for. And so there's this like conflict where if you've spent time in the field, you know that the possibilities are large and actually quite pragmatic. And if you haven't spent time there, you think it's not pragmatic. And so there's this there's this friction. You know, so for me, this was just validation that there are ways to run pragmatic, cost-effective timely clinical trials for diseases that are exacerbated by the biology of aging and you know there's room for more companies that choose to narrow their therapeutics focus to exactly those biologies and pursue those diseases pragmatically one of my thoughts on this topic is that there's actually quite a few generic drugs with dramatic effects on lifespan and aging in model systems and and two that come to mind are metformin which is the subject of the upcoming TAME trial directed by Dr. Nir Barzilai, and rapamycin, which is being used in an intervention study by the Dog Aging Project. And there's this open question that I think about a lot, which is, especially given the practical difficulties of testing drugs for aging indications in many cases, how do we get the money to run trials on drugs that no one can own? And I think the same logic applies to a host of other compounds that are considered nutraceuticals, not because they're any less drug-like, but because they're natural products that never went through clinical trials, but were recognized as safe and can be sold without clinical claims. So my question for you in light of that line of thinking is, does the nonprofit approach signal a way forward for clinical trials of generics or even nutraceuticals for age-related indications or even with problems of definition and endpoint aside, aging itself? I wish. You know, I'm too pragmatic of a person to say I think it definitely does. I think what happened here is there was a global pandemic and, and philanthropists stepped up. I mean, I think this is going to get into debates about where government money goes and what the role of government and society is. I certainly think that it's possible for a nonprofit to effectively run clinical trials and test things. My naivety doesn't extend to thinking that like this model will extend beyond global pandemics very well because, I mean, just empirically, these aren't things that happen a lot. <laughs> There's not a lot of repurposing of generic drug trials running. You know, obviously, TAME has done an incredible job fighting for a long time to make this happen, which is awesome. You know, the optimistic view is there are more and more people with pretty far-thinking views on biology and technology who are requiring a lot of money these days. And so maybe the philanthropy angle will will ramp up. But uh, yeah, I'd be honest, I'm not as optimistic as I wish I could say I am. That's a fair answer. I mean, special circumstances apply sometimes. What a fantastic discussion. So there are a couple of questions that we like to ask all of our guests before we sign off. And we're just interested in you know, maybe some blue sky thinking on your part. I know that you've described yourself as a pragmatic person, so I'm inviting you to put your blue sky hat on for the moment. What's the most interesting aspect of longevity science or aging that your company is not working on? This one will be a little bit pro for me, and it's actually part of the reason I'm involved in the field. You know, I think one of the interesting things when I was, you know, I had a number of conversations with Laura Deming when she was trying to encourage me and get me into the field. And I'm always very interested in diabetes, of course, because I have type 1 diabetes, so I'm selfish about it. And, you know, she made the comment about how many different, you know, you mentioned metformin, but there's multiple different strong connections between therapeutics that apply to those who are having metabolic challenges and therapeutics that show potential for 
quote-unquote longevity-related results or cross-disease-related results. I think that is incredibly interesting, both from a personal perspective and from a company-building perspective. And if I could snap my fingers and you know magically spring expands and we're running a bunch more things, getting into metabolism and the intersection of you know, where I personally come from and what's happening in the aging space would be quite interesting to me. I think it's very interesting that if you look at both the specific indication increases as well as the specific functional changes that accrue in our cells as someone proceeds down the path of type 1 and type 2 diabetes, those changes mirror quite closely what accelerated aging looks like and you know the indications that you're going to get hit with and um, both the functional problems that you start to have. You know, I think that's very interesting. And there's obviously connections here between the immune system and metabolism. I would say other, you know, our focus is on the immune system. I would say it'd be really, really fun to get in the metabolism space and it would have a, a deep personal connection to me to why I became convinced to join this space. Awesome. Where do you see our field or our sector or whatever you want to call it in the next five to 10 years? Where do you think we'll be? I think there's going to be multiple, at any given point in time, I think there's going to be many different, multiple clinical trials run across multiple companies that are making these claims of having found a pragmatic path to a specific indication, but that, that are tying it to broader biology with cross-disease potential. The optimist in me hopes that in that time frame, more than one will have read out with real promise for those clinical indications. And when that happens, I think that the influx of believers from pharma and from funders will dramatically increase because if you have a drug that justifiably is showing promise in one indication, then there's your market to continue investing in that drug. And if you have the narrative and justifiable scientific support to believe that you might have a much broader impact, uh, it's a very, very good investment. And so, you know, certainly those trials are coming. You are uh, one of the companies leading this in the Vanguard. And if those results start looking positive and we've got more and more companies adding to those list of trials, that would be a pretty exciting thing to see. I think we can both agree about that. Ben Kamins of Spring Discovery, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. I'm honored to be a part of this. Thanks for what you do and glad to be part of this community. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at BioagePodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.